right. We have two uh, lessons left in this How to Study the Bible series. And, and as you have been aware through this quarter, we're using this book, Grasping God, God's Word. And I want to let you know, we're only when I finish up next week, we'll have only gone through half the book. So if you want to do some continued study in this arena, I would encourage you to seek out that book. The second half of the book dives into the individual genres that are present in the, in the, in the Bible and explores them specifically in, in when it comes to, um, uh, to study. So you'll spend time in the Gospels, you'll spend time in the Epistles, and so on, uh, with each genre being represented uniquely. So uh, that's just to say that we couldn't cover everything there is to cover in this one quarter. But hopefully what we've done is laid a foundation for you to understand how to go about initiating and conducting your own study of God's Word. And I want to begin by looking at this interpretive journey again because uh, we're making a little bit of a transition tonight in, in where we're at in the process. But if you recall, we, this map, which comes from the book Grasping God's Word, this map lays out the plan for um, the, the study process. And it starts with step one of grasping the text in their town. And what that means is understanding what the text meant to its original audience, to its original recipients, to its original readers. The first step involves the careful um, reading and observation of the text, uh, scrutinizing the grammar, analyzing the words, studying the context both historically and literarily. And uh, all that careful reading is done so that we, we have a grasp of what's being said. And then we take our careful reading, which this has been the primary uh, portion of our study in these Wednesday night sessions. We've been focused on, on how to go about the careful reading of the text because this step is so vital, so important, and probably the step that will consume the majority of your time. But we, we focus on this because we have to understand what the text meant to its original audience before we can get to the point of applying it to our own day and time. So we, step one is to grasp the text in their own town. That involves careful reading. That involves some investigation. That involves uh, understanding context and so on. Step two is to identify uh, the things that separate us from the original audience. It's called measuring the width of the river in this analogy, this map analogy, there's a river separating us from the original audience. That river is made up of things like culture and language and time and situation. There are so many different um, contexts that will prevent us from being able to do a, a, a direct or literal um, connection from what was written to them to, and applying it directly to us. There are things that aren't going to be the same in context. And so we have to uh, figure out what the things that are that uh, are different from their culture, from their language, from their situation, from their time, maybe even from their covenant if we're dealing with the Old Testament. And so uh, we have to identify those differences, um, recognize that they uh, create a separation for us, and then we have to um, um, take, use that in the process of, that leads up to step three, which is developing a theological principle that um, is apparent in the text and that can apply both to the culture of that day and to us today. So you figure out what the text meant to its original audience. You identify those differences that exist between us and them. And that allows you then to discover what's the underlying theological principle that can apply across 
the river. And when you um, develop out that principle, when you discover that principle, you, can then, you then need to compare it to the rest of Scripture, which is step four, consulting the biblical map. You make sure the theological principle you're discovering in that text doesn't contradict or oppose or get modified anywhere else in the text of Scripture before you finalize and move to the fifth step, which is applying that text. Grasping the text in our town, as he says, but applying it to, to a context today. Now, we have spent most of our time focused on step one. And more time is going to be spent on step one than any other step because good biblical interpretation accepts that a text cannot mean what it could never have meant for its original readers or its original hearers. And so we've focused on that for many weeks now. And hopefully you've acquired several different um, tools or strategies for how to, to investigate, how to study, how to read the text before you get to the point that you want to develop that principle and move into the area of application. Here's the other thing you do need to know, though. Steps two, three, and four, the, the measuring the width of the river, which is a reference to discovering those things that are those differences between our time and their time. Step three, which is crossing the principalizing bridge. That's the development of that theological principle that connects uh, both their time to our time. And then step four, which is consulting the biblical map, uh, which is comparing your theological principle to the rest of Scripture, all those steps happen in very short order from each other. They, they all uh, are, are interrelated, and they are all happening somewhat concurrently. So where step one, you'll spend a lot of time in step one, solely in step one, when you get to steps two, three, and four, you're going to hit those all almost in consecutive order and at times even overlapping order. And so... Tonight we're going to talk primarily about this development of theological principles. We're going to just discuss how we get um, to that point of determining what the theological principle of a text is. Now this isn't going to require as in-depth of a process because we would have already done all of that investigation on the front end. That careful reading of the text sets us up for discovering the theological principles. You're, going to, you're probably going to uncover them in the process of your investigation of the text. So that's why this one speeds along a little bit faster at this point. Um, so I want to share with you uh, five um, concepts that should be considered when you're trying to pick out what the theological principles should be in a given text. And of course, all these are coming from the book Grasping God's Word. The first is that the principle should be reflected in the text. In other words, you should not be developing a theological principle based on some other passage. Your theological principle should be born out of the text you are studying specifically. You will compare it to other parts of Scripture later in the process, but you do not develop a principle that is not apparent in the text. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a little while. Uh, the second thing you should consider, the second criteria you should consider when you're determining a theological principle is that the principle should be timeless and not tied to a specific situation. It's very easy to come across some things in Scripture that are very context-oriented, that are very specific to the occasion. Uh, and uh, we'll talk about uh, one in just a moment. In Leviticus chapter 11, you read the dietary laws of, under Mosaic Covenant. 
And uh, I don't know, how many of you have had bacon today or any other form of pork today? Raise your hand. It's sprinkled on my salad, made it great. Why do we eat pork if Leviticus chapter 11 says you're not allowed to? We, we understand through the process, and we'll, we're actually going to use this passage as an example in just a moment, but we understand through the process that there are some specifics that are relegated to culture, time, place, things like that, um, or even covenant for that matter. And so when you're developing your or determining your theological principle, you need to make sure that it's a principle that applies in all cultures, in all times, in all places, um, and, and, and is not limited and bound to a specific setting, a specific time, a specific age, a specific so on. So another criteria, third criteria, is that the principle should not be culturally bound. Again, that kind of piggybacks off of the previous one where it was an idea of being timeless and not tied to a specific situation, but you also don't want it tied to a specific culture. Um, so, for instance, uh, an, another one that will come up in, in our examination in just a moment, you have this statement throughout the New Testament, five times in the New Testament, to greet one another with a holy kiss. Nobody greeted me with a holy kiss tonight. Come on, Bradley. I'm waiting. Nobody agreed with me the Holy Kiss tonight, but yet that's five times commanded the New Testament. Why? Because in our investigation of that concept, we come to understand it was a culturally appropriate way of greeting one another in, the new te- in that time period. Now, what do people do? I, I sat on the chair right out here outside these doors. A number of people came up to me, and, and, and what did they do to greet me? Can you guess? Shook my hand. We understand the, the cultural connection between the two. Typically speaking, we understand that the theological principle to be taken from the greet one another with the holy kiss is not that we should be kissing each other. It's something else. So you want to find a theological principle that is not culturally bound. Fourth, you want to find a principle that should correspond to the teaching of the rest of Scripture. What that means is it's not a principle that will get... Um, knocked out by another passage. You, when you're developing your theological principle, it has to be one that ties in with the rest of Scripture and doesn't contradict something elsewhere in Scripture, that, that doesn't pose a problem with the rest of Scripture. It would be very easy, particularly uh, coming out of the Old Testament, to have a theolo- theological principles that would find the, in the New Testament something that negates it. And so you've got to make sure that whatever theological principle you choose is consistent with the rest of Scripture, that it relates to the rest of Scripture, that it doesn't contradict the rest of Scripture. Number five, the principle should be relevant to both the biblical audience and the contemporary audience. What that means is it's a theological principle that was applicable back then and is applicable today. If it's applicable applicable today but not back then, then that couldn't be what the principle meant. That couldn't be the theological principle because it has to make sense to the original audience. It has to make sense to the original recipients of that piece of God's divine word. If it is applicable back then but not today, then it's not a theological principle because it doesn't have the universal truth to it. It doesn't have the universal application, I should say, to it. So we have to find theological principles that make, meet that balance of being appropriate for back then and for today. Applicable back then. I don't know why I can't say applicable tonight. Applicable for back then and for today. So here's what I want to do. 
I've, I've selected two passages, and I'm going to have us kind of work through these very quickly with some of the, the, the steps that we've seen in this interpretive process. Don't worry, I'm not going to like leave you hanging or out to dry or anything. But I want to start with Leviticus chapter 11, verses 1 through 47. I do encourage you to turn there, though I'm not going to read the entirety of the text because of its length. But I've already alluded to it. Leviticus chapter 11 is the passage in Mosaic Law where we receive the instructions related to uh, dietary laws. It's the kosher requirements of the Israelites. And if you turn to this passage in Leviticus chapter 11, what you will find is that God outlines the food, the really the creatures, the animals, both land and sea and air, that the Israelites were allowed to eat and the ones they weren't allowed to eat. And uh, if you scan through the text, I'm going to kind of show you how this whole five-step process, really four-step because we're not getting into the application yet, but the, four, the first four steps uh, relate to this passage. So if you were to do the careful reading of this text, some of the observations that I would hope you would make would include these but not be limited to them. Hopefully you would really notice terms. The term unclean appears 32 times. In Leviticus chapter 11. In 47 verses, unclean appears 32 times. Now, clean, I think, only appears three. And it would be worth noting that as well. I forgot to add that on to that line as well. But the unclean 32 times, clean three. You also come across the word term detest or detestable 11 times. And it's interesting because in, in this passage, the detest and detestable usually does not overlap with the clean, unclean terminology. It says it's almost as if the clean, unclean terminology doesn't appear where the detestable terminology appears. And the detestable terminology doesn't appear where the unclean. That's not exactly true, but it, it almost feels like it at times. And then you have the term defile that appears twice. That's not that many times, but the word defile is very much a synonym for unclean. And then you have this phrase, be holy for I am holy, repeated twice in the text. So those are just some observations that you might make, particularly on the word count. There are plenty of other observations you would make as you journey through the text. But those are some based simply, and I basically just simply on the repetition of terms. And if you were to study the context, you would notice from the literary context, you would notice a couple of things that, that appear. Because for the most part, you have a list of you shall eat this type of animal. You shall not eat this type of animal. That's what comprises most of it. Or you will be unclean if you touch this, but not if you touch this. So you have this, uh, that kind of repetitive um, concept throughout here, except in a couple of places well, but what you'll notice when you read through this and really spend time in context is that you'll see that the laws presented in this chapter are intended to prevent the Israelites from eating anything that is considered detestable and as a result would make them unclean or defiled. Especially if you get to the last two verses, you find out that that's actually the point of the whole chapter is to prevent them from falling in the unclean category. And then if you look at verse 44 and 45, you discover that these laws were instituted in order to promote holiness. That's where the re repetition of the be holy for I am holy appears in this text. And so what you find out is these laws were instituted to promote holiness so that the Israelites would be imitators of Yahweh. 
In verse 44 and 45, God makes it clear that he's holy. And because he's holy, they should be holy. And the whole chapter is about how they can be holy when it comes to their diet. So what we would want to do, still focused on step one where we're um, reading the text carefully, we would make these observations, both observations in the grammar, but also observations in the context. And uh, I, I would admit that there would probably be some study that would lead you to figure out why these animals as opposed to those animals are unclean. You would probably spend some time contextually looking at why, why would pigs be deemed unclean? What, why is that significant and a cow's not, you know, and things like that. Um, but I didn't want to get too deep into it. And then you would develop a summary of the meaning of this text. In a, in a one-sentence, maybe two-sentence summary, you might say something like, God instructed the Israelites to be holy, to, that is to be separate, like him, by eating only animals he identified as clean. Now, you could phrase that other ways. That's just the way I, that's the phrase I came up with. That's the, the sentence I chose. That the whole chapter is about being holy like God. And one of the ways the Israelites could achieve that or were called to achieve that, instructed to achieve that, were by eating only animals that were identified by God as clean. The emphasis of the chapter is obviously on being holy and achieving that holiness by choosing to be clean as opposed to unclean. Now, now that we have a summary of what the, the passage meant in its time to its people, to its original audience, we then need to um, measure the width of the river. We need to discover the differences between us and them, our time and their time. And a couple of, of differences you might pick up on. Number one, you might come up with the covenantal divide, the fact that this is a Mosaic law versus Christ's law, if you want to call it that. The Old Testament versus the New Testament. The New Covenant versus the Mosaic Covenant. That would be an observation you want to make that makes their situation different from ours. You may also think in terms of a cultural divide. Maybe you'll think uh, industrially and scientifically we're advanced compared to them. Maybe you'll think in terms of uh, cooking abilities. Um, the scientific abilities, particularly in terms of knowing about germs, knowing about parasites, knowing about things of that nature and, and how they are present in certain animals. If you look at the list of animals that are excluded, really the only ones we're going to balk at are pig, shellfish, rabbit, and squirrel. I don't know how many of you want to go out and eat uh, ostrich. Not really on my uh, list of things I want to try. I mean, James Howard's not here, but he might. But let's be honest. Most of the animals, I mean, there, there's even lists of bugs that you can and can't eat. Well, that's shellfish. It really, uh, now there are some fish that don't have, catfish, your, your bottom feeders would be there. Uh, but think about it. There's some there's, not a, there's some big things on there, like the idea of not getting to eat shrimp and bacon. I mean, that's pretty sad, if you ask me. But outside of those kind of categories, there's a lot of things on this list we would never want to touch. So when we start looking at the divide, though, we're looking at, okay, you know, when it comes to shellfish in particular, if those aren't cooked just right, you're really facing some... Uh, 
health crises. I mean, oysters are, are really dangerous if not handled correctly. Or if, uh, you know, if you've got a red tide, things like that. So you, you've got some of those considerations. Uh, and you, we live in a society that understands that in a way that they did not necessarily have the scientific backing to provide them. So that's another divide to notice. With that, we then have identified the differences between us and them. And you could have made more. I just chose to go with two. I didn't want to belabor it. But um, you could probably come up with more. Once you've done that, now the step is, what's the theological principle? Anybody want to take a stab at what the theological principle would be from Leviticus chapter 11? Or really, A, because sometimes it's not one, sometimes there's multiple. We, we, I, I should make that observation. Not every text is limited to one theological principle. Be holy. I said it this way. God is holy and he wants his people to be holy. That's your theological principle. Guess what? That theological principle is based on the text. It's, it's very close to quoting a verse from the text. It is a theological principle that applies to them back then and to us today. It's a theological principle that is not bound by culture, that is not bound by time. And it's a theological principle that's consistent with the rest of Scripture. So if we were to compare it to, say, some passages in the New Testament, and there are more than just these, but for instance, you can go to Mark chapter 7 where Jesus declared all foods clean. That's a little uh, narrator's note by Mark in the text in a parenthetical statement. But Jesus taught that there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And he gave a list a list of sins that defile a person from the inside out. And his message was about cleanness, about, notice the defile language that we were able to find in Leviticus 11. You can also go to Peter when his instructions are given in 1 Peter chapter 1 uh, to those who, who are children of God. To not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. In the very next verse, verse 16, he actually quotes from Leviticus chapter 11. Be holy, for I am holy. So when you compare this to the map of Scripture, when you take the opportunity to consult the biblical map, this theological principle stands up. Because there's an expectation throughout the New Testament that Christians, Christians are going to be holy as God is holy. Yes, sir. How would I compare that? Um, well, I, the one thing I would note there is uh, what, we, what, what do we call it? Oh, what's the word? Hold on. Ben, help me out with this term, the different ages. Yeah, that's one. So you, have a, you haven't gotten under Mosaic Covenant yet. You're under, I guess, what you would call Noahic Covenant at that point. Um, and, and you're in the patriarchal age. 
So there's the standard of the clean versus unclean has not fully come into play yet. However, we should note that there was clean and unclean animals on the ark worth identifying. So you have some of that situation going on, but it's also worth noting God still had a dietary restriction that distinguished, uh, that Noah was given that was a standard to operate under. So there are still some guiding principles there, but we do have to also notice that there is a, a, a river of divide between Noah's time and the Israelites' time even. So that's actually, if we were going from Noah to us, you almost are crossing two different rivers in the process, for, just for the record. But anyway, but there, are, there are comparisons you can make, but um, for this instance, I really want to focus on how to, how to get us to the point where it's going to affect us. So um, now I have to jump back to where I was. Anyway, so you can see in the New Testament how, how being holy is still an operating principle. And so this principle of uh, God is holy, so we should be holy, stands up. That's kind of the process, and I thought that might be an, an easy passage to, to utilize uh, to show that. Let me give you another one. I have not written the answers for this one. I'm going to seek your participation in this one. Romans chapter 16. Let's open up and look at Romans chapter 16 and the first 16 verses. This, is an, another, this one I chose intentionally, though, because it's not a clear-cut normal read in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 16, the first 16 verses, you have Paul greeting a whole bunch of people. So starting in verse 1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prissa and Aquila, Priscilla and Aquila as we would know them, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampelatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Statius. Greet Epilus, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodion. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, I, I can't say that one. Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Phlogis, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. It's not an easy read. It's not necessarily even an enjoyable read. Anytime we get to those t times where there are name lists, those aren't really passages we want to dive in on. But this is, to me, a very beautiful passage when you spend time investigating it. So we, if you do the careful reading there, what are some things you observe? As, as we read through that and as you look at it in your Bibles right now, what are some things in careful reading you observe? Greetings. He uses the word greet a lot. I didn't even count it up, but he greets 
and calls for greeting on a number of occasions. Any other observations? As Curtis said, he is very involved in a lot of people's lives. He, to summarize, he knows a lot of details about a lot of people. And it's fascinating because one thing we know about Paul is he hadn't been to Rome yet. And yet these are Christians in Rome. These are Christians that he had met in other places. We know he met Priscilla and Aquila in, in Ephesus, I believe it was. Um, so we, we know he's got connections with Christians in Rome, and he knows details about their lives. And it, it's very fascinating if you take the time to break down some of the titles he uses with these people. It's very interesting when you start looking at the gender of the names, that it's a mixed bag of male and female. Uh, and and uh, anyway, what are some other observations of your care, if you were to do careful reading? Granted, we're not taking the time to do true careful reading, but what are some other reading observations? He praises some individuals. He, praises some individuals. he speaks highly of some individuals. He, he, uh, he uh, even... What's the word? I used it in a sermon not too long ago. Commends some individuals. Very, very affectionate, yes. Terms like beloved. Yes, there's an intimacy there. Uh, and, and talking about how one risks his life, yes. Great observations. Now, if we were to summarize this passage, if we were to come up with a summary statement about this passage, what, what could that summary statement be? Greetings to the saints. We, 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 we might say it. Um, Paul sends greetings to uh, the saints in Rome. Something like that could be a summary statement. We might even want to uh, add on something besides greetings. We might want to uh, say that Paul sends greetings and we could come up with another term to the Christians in Rome. What was? It? Did somebody say something? I couldn't hear you. Love. Citizens of the kingdom. Yeah. Okay. Personal. That's a great. Personal would be a great addition term in there because there's because of the intimacy we've talked about. So we could come up with a summary statement similar to that, Russ. Oh yeah, he does. He does uh, reference their contributions to the kingdom quite a bit. That's a great observation as well, and that might be something to slide into that summary statement somehow. Yeah. I, I find it even comparable to uh, the book of Nehemiah where we have the list of all, everybody that worked on the wall and, and all the contributions that they, that they particularly made. It's, it, 
it's the things, we don't want to read these passages necessarily, but if you take the time, there's, there, you can find something beautiful happening in them. So you're, you're right, going back to the Old Testament, going back to the book of Numbers, there's people specifically identified, and there's a reason they're specifically identified. Um, so all that's worth noting. Now, let's think culturally different. Let's think what's, or not just culturally, but let's just think about measuring this river, this divide between Paul's culture of first century, Paul's day and time, and us. What are some things that are different between then and now related to this text? The church is meeting in homes. That's a great observation. That's right. He, he, like, physical presence is not easy or quick. The quickest form of correspondence with these people is by letter. And that's fascinating because even though this audience in here pretty much knows how to write letters, when was the last time you wrote a letter? Some of you probably still write letters with frequency. But physically writing is dwindling. Now that we have email and text message, what, what else would you observe that's different between their time and our time? Ooh, there you go. Fellow prisoner. He's, he's dealing with incarceration. We're not. Anything else? They're enduring a time of persecution. Uh, let's, let's get more definitive. They're enduring a time of physical persecution. We are not necessarily. Great observation. See, you, we, we find those differences. Now, what could be, now that we've identified the differences, it's time to create our principle, to develop our principle. What would be a, a, a theological principle to pull from this text. Based on the observations we've made of the text, the careful reading of the text, and based on the, the context we've noticed, based on the uh, differences we've noticed between us and them, what could be a theological principle that applies to that time period and to ours? Yes. That's a great that's a great observation. I mentioned a moment ago, greet one another with a holy kiss gets mentioned five times in the New Testament. It gets mentioned more times of the one another commands, it gets mentioned more times than some of the others like serve one another. There are, there are some one another commands that we think are more important, but greet one another with a holy kiss gets mentioned more times than they do. Encourage one another doesn't get mentioned as much as greet one another with a holy kiss. And so really there could be a, a theological principle here born out of the idea of greeting, born out of the idea of how we treat one another and how we praise one another and how we encourage one another and how we welcome one another. 
So I do believe that would be a fantastic theological principle to bear out of this, one that we don't talk about enough. Is there any other theological principle that you might develop based on this unique text? Family? That, that the, the, the church should be a place of, of familial relationships? That's a great observation, too, because he does, he does speak in terms of family with some of these individuals. That's a great, a great theological principle that could be born out of this as well. Any others? Yes. So spiritual edification taking place and building one another up beyond just greeting, a theological principle that can be born out of that as well. So I, did, I wanted to do this little exercise to, to, to show you that this may not be as complicated as it sounds. Like the way I've presented all this might be more complicated sounding than it really is. When you take the time to go through this process that um, these authors have developed, it is possible to develop that theological principle. Once you develop that principle, you then can, and can make that transition to application, which will be our focus primarily next week. But we're going to direct our thoughts in, in that way a little bit this evening because one thing we need to discuss is the difference between meaning and application. Throughout the first half of the 20th century, the traditional approach to interpreting any literature whether that be biblical or secular, was to assume that the author determines the meaning and the reader's job is to find that meaning. This position, this belief, is called authorial intention. What that means is whoever is the author of a text, whatever he or she meant determines the meaning of that text. Do you agree with that? If I author a book... Am I the one determining what the book means? The authorial intent approach came under attack throughout the latter half of the 20th century, and many literary critics today argue that it is the reader and not the author who determines what a text means. This position is called reader response. In other words, there are other people who say, I write a book, you read that book, how you interpret that book determines its meaning. Do you agree with that? Isn't that a debate that centers around our Constitution? Is it what the authors are intended or is it how we interpret it? I knew I'd get you started. I knew I'd get him started. But what I'm saying is, don't people debate that? that that's the question. Not, not should they, not, but do they? Let me give you uh, an example that's less contradictory, or less, less inflammatory. The Wizard of Oz. Now, The Wizard of Oz is you know, the, probably one of the top five greatest films of all time. We're getting there. But it's not the Constitution. It's not a living document. <laughs> you know, kids get to watch this movie all the time. And from a kid's perspective, this is a story about a young lady from Kansas and her cute dog 
who end up in this magical world and, and, and they are facing off with these bad witches and they're just trying to get home and they're going to get the help of some new friends. And it's just this lovely story about a heroine who um, overcomes the odds. But when Frank L. Baum wrote this in 1900, there was a lot of political stuff going on, particularly around whether or not the U.S. economy should be backed by the gold standard. And so in his book, it's been argued that the yellow brick road is intended to represent the gold standard. And it leads to the Wizard of Oz, who turns out to be a fake and is just a front. And, uh, and, and it's contended that the author's intent was to say, hey, we can't rely on the gold standard. That's why in the book, Dorothy's slippers are not ruby. They're silver in the book. But, you know, that doesn't look good on the silver screen. Ruby does. And then the scarecrow represents uh, the farmers. The tin man represents the factory workers. The cowardly lion represents the uh, politicians. Everything has symbolism in a political satire. That's what's argued. So was it the author who determines the meaning, or was it us as the audience determining the meaning? Do we determine the meaning by how we interpret it, or do we determine, or is the meaning determined by how the author wrote it? Well, that means I didn't get an answer from you. <laughs> There you go. You're, he says he's a politician, so he doesn't give a straight answer. All right. All that is, is a way of setting us up for understanding. We have to choose who gets to decide the meaning. When it comes to, to uh, content, it's very important that we search for the author's meaning because serious negative consequences can come if we misunderstand or ignore the meaning of what an author intended. Let me give you an example of that. That is a text right there. It is one of the most common literary statements in America. You encounter it more often than you do anything else. And you can choose to follow it with a reader-response approach. That means you interpret the text to mean what you want it to mean. And some of you do that. You approach that sign and you just slow down enough, check for cars, and then you go without actually coming to a stop. You have operated under a reader response. You've interpreted what that sign means based on what you want it to mean. But then that cop sees you roll through that stop sign. And that cop interprets that based on the author's intent. And he pulls you over because you did not come to a complete stop. Who's right? Or let's give you another example. You get an electric bill or a gas bill or a water bill, whatever utility you want to think of. And they're charging you $200 for the previous month's utility. Can you say that that 200 number, you interpreted it as 20 and get away with it? 
Is it a reader response situation or is it an authorial intent response? You see what I mean? That's the mindset we have to have towards the Bible. God's purpose is to communicate with us about himself and his will for us. We can choose to ignore his message and interpret interpret biblical texts according to our feelings and desires, but if we do, we will suffer the consequences of disobedience. We will also miss out on knowing God in the way he desires. So it is essential that we follow the authorial intent approach to interpreting the Bible. It's not what I think it means as the reader, it's what he intended it to say in the beginning. Our job is to discover the meaning that God intended, not to come up with the meaning we want. In biblical interpretation, the reader does not control their meaning. The author controls the meaning. This conclusion leads to one of the most basic principles of of, of interpretation. We do not create the meaning. We seek to discover the meaning that has been placed there by the author. Now, this is important. Because what happens oftentimes in today's culture of Christianity is we sit down for a Bible study and someone reads a passage and then stands up there and says, what does that mean to you? That's not biblical study. It's not what it means to you. It's what did he mean when he wrote it. So let me... uh, share with you a couple of things to avoid when you're investigating meaning. And you're going to see, hopefully, if we have time, how this connects to um, application in just a moment. Things to avoid when discovering meaning. There are two things. Avoid spiritualizing the text in order to discover its meaning. Spiritualizing occurs when we discover deep, secret meanings that the authors never intended. It's a product of our imaginations or a retrojection of the other biblical truth back onto the passage. I'm going to give you an example that the authors gave of a preacher who preached a sermon on Joshua chapter 3 and chapter 4. That's the story of how God stopped the waters of the Jordan River so the Israelites could cross over on dry land. And they stop in the middle of the river. They grab 12 stones. They set those stones on the river, uh, on the river bank as a memorial. One preacher noticed that when God stopped up the river, the Israelites crossed over on dry ground. And he proceeded to come up with a sermon that spiritualized the meaning of the word dry. The dry riverbed, he proclaimed, shows us that God cares for us in the dry times of life. He made the point that God was taking care of them on the dry riverbed. And so in those moments where everything seems dry and barren, God's taking care of us, even though we may not realize it. The thesis of that sermon may be true, but it has nothing to do with the text. In fact, it's argued that this isn't a dry time in the life of the Israelites. This is a prosperous time in the life of the Israelites. What did they do when they crossed over that river? What was the first thing they did? They went and marched around Jericho and the walls fell. This is the initiation of their conquest of the promised land. This is not a dry time in their experience. That was the wilderness wanderings. That was the bondage in Egypt. This is mountaintop time. And so the application was born out of spiritualizing some aspect of a story that had nothing to do with the concept that was presented. And unfortunately, people do this all too often. They spiritualize 
something that's not meant to be taken the way that they took it. Another thing that happens is allegorizing. I never clicked ahead, sorry. There, that's the idea of spiritualizing. I'll let you look at that for a moment. The other thing we need to avoid is allegorizing the text in order to discover its meaning. You know what an allegory is, I hope. An allegory is a story that uses an extensive amount of symbolism. Parables of Jesus are often considered allegories to some degree. The difference between an allegory and a parable, though, is that an allegory tries to create a symbol of everything in the text. In fact, the Wizard of Oz would fall in that context of allegory. And so what an allegory does is it, is it makes uh, most or many of the details in the story represent something or carry some specific nuance of meaning. Now, allegory is a literary technique that's present in the Bible. You can go to a passage like Isaiah chapter 5 in the first seven verses, and Isaiah is going to use allegory to communicate a message to the Israelites. But he's also going to, in verse 7 of that passage of Isaiah 5, explain the allegory. He's going to make the connections between the different things that are used as metaphors. So the, the point here is this. Allegory does appear in the Bible, but few texts in the Bible use it. It's not prevalent. So, when so you will find few opportunities to use allegorical interpretation. What I'm saying is allegory might appear in the Bible in a few scattered places, but that doesn't mean every part of the Bible needs to be interpreted allegorically. You shouldn't be looking for signs and symbols in every statement in the Bible. You misinterpret the text when you employ allegorical interpretation where, it is, where an allegory is not present. This happens most often in guess what book? Revelation. Looking for signs and symbols in every detail. But I want to give you a more absurd example because that's more fun. In Exodus chapter 27 and verse 19, we are given the description of the uh, tabernacle, its construction, how it's put together and all that. And we are informed in Exodus chapter 27 verse 19 that the, the curtains, the exterior walls uh, were fastened to the ground with brass tent pegs basically. Now, that was, not a good, that was not me quoting the passage. That was me giving you the basic idea of it. And some uh, preachers try to find connections to Christ in every piece of the tabernacle. And so one preacher has said that the tent pegs of the tabernacle were made of brass, therefore they did not rust. And as they withstood every desert storm, even so Christ's holy life withstood every onslaught of Satan. How minutely the details of God of the God-given pattern for the tabernacle in the wilderness foreshadows the glories of our crucified and risen Lord. He's comparing Christ to the tent pegs. Now, when you look at the tabernacle, you can find connections in the New Testament to the altar of burnt offering, to the lampstand, to the table of showbread, to the veil, to the Ark of the Covenant, and so on. The altar of incense, all those furnishings. We did a whole series on that. But God did not set the tabernacle up so that every piece of material present there is intended to be an allegorical reference to something in the New Testament. You know how we know those furnishings in the New Testament relate to, I mean, those furnishings in the tabernacle relate to aspects of, of Christ's identity or to aspects of the church? Because the book of Hebrews told us. And the idea there is that when it comes to allegory, 
We should be careful to, to utilize it unless the New Testament defines it for us. We need to be careful to assume that it's happening unless the New Testament is giving evidence of it. So the book of Hebrews does a great job of making the comparisons between the tabernacle and Christ. But we should not assume that the tent pegs are intended to represent Christ. Another author regarding the tent pegs says that they were buried in the ground, but they also emerged from the ground. That which is buried represents Christ's burial, and that which was exposed from the ground represents his ascension. Like People really go to great lengths to make allegories. They're trying to make the Bible speak on things that it was not intended to speak on. So we need to be careful not to spiritualize passages that weren't meant to be spiritualized. And we need to be careful not to allegorize passages that weren't meant to be allegorized. So when we're doing biblical study, what happens is that's a, a preacher or that's a person taking stuff they know from elsewhere in the Scripture and projecting it onto a text where it didn't belong. That's called what, Ben? Eisegesis. That's when we're projecting onto the text instead of letting the text communicate to us. So we need to avoid those things. Now, I'm going to wrap this up very quickly. We need to understand the difference between meaning and application, and this is, this, is why, this is setting us up for next week. Meaning refers to that which the author intended to communicate when he wrote the text. Meaning is something we can validate. It is tied to the text and the intent of the author, not the reader. The meaning is based on the author, not the reader. Therefore, the meaning of the text is the same for all Christians. It is not subjective. It does not change from reader to reader. Application refers to the response of the reader to the meaning of the text. It reflects the impact of the text on the reader's life. It is much more subjective, and it reflects the specific life situation of the reader. The application of the meaning will vary from Christian to Christian, but it will still have some boundaries influenced by the author's meaning. Do you understand what all that means? The meaning is determined by the author. It is set. It is objective for all Christians. The application is what can vary. So instead of, and let me skip to that scene and then we'll be done. Instead of saying, what does this passage mean to you? That's incorrect. What is correct is, what does this passage mean? Followed by, how should you apply this meaning to your life? And if you took a text like this, Ephesians chapter 6, about children obeying their parents, honoring their father and mother, that has a different application for my Micah than it does for me. Than it does for someone whose parents are deceased. The meaning, I mean, the application changes. And I may have said meaning earlier, but the application changes based on life situation. What about the child who's being abused or sexually molested by their parent? The application has some change. The meaning doesn't change. The application might. We need to know that as we venture into next week and talk about application. That application is where it can have multiple applications from the meaning, and they can be different based on your life situation. But the meaning is always the same. With that, we're going to dismiss, and we'll finalize this study next week. Thank you for being here and for participating.